You heard any good jokes lately? No. Seen any good TV? No. <laughs> you watching any good movies? No. How about them Mets? God, they suck. <laughs> Community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic Cinematic Community. Just tell people not to swing the mic around. <laughs> that's a good that's, that's a good point. Right? You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. The art and craft of movie making, the stories that define it. Welcome to Cinematic Community, folks. I'm your host, Louis Normandon. With me, as always, podcast producer, co-host, and friend, Brian Hart. Friend to who? Friend to the people. Friend to no one. Liar! This week we sat down with Jendra Jarnigan. It's a great interview. I think it's the fifth of our six action-packed Metroplex capital of the world interviews <laughs> no one had ever done a podcast from new york city they said it couldn't be done <laughs> no that is nonsense and i said it can be done sir it can so we found ourselves deep in conversation with jendra jarnigan for uh, a great ride talking about uh, her experience with the the original red camera series she was an electrician on sex in the city and now she's a dp going all over the world shooting great films. She spent some time working for Ellen Curris, uh, a legendary cinematographer, world-class, who shot one of my favorite films, Blow. Great scene in that movie where they got the boxes of money and they're like, where are we going to put more of this? I think there's some room in the closet. And we just a great, great little steady cam shot throughout the house, boxes in the halls, everywhere. Oh... But back to Gendra. Sorry, what what about Gendra? (laughs) No, we had a great time with Gendra, and we hope you do too. So please uh, uh, take a listen. Cinematic Community. I think we're fired. We're just gonna we're just gonna leave. (laughs) Talk about whatever you want next time. (laughs) (laughs) So what got you into the business? Um. I was a nerdy artistic kid, and uh, I was lucky enough to be selected to an um, extracurricular gifted and talented program in middle school, and I didn't really know what that was going to be all about. I just, you know, was told, hey, somebody nominated you for this. I don't even know who, who of my teachers or whatever, you know, said, hey, put gender in this program. Um, so they gave me a piece of paper with a couple of options where you could like leave school one day a month to, uh, to go, you know, be absorbed in something available in this program outside of, of what the school had to offer. And uh, one of the options was video production. And this was 1986. And there was, having video production available to middle school students was not the norm, you know, the way that now every school will have video cameras and editing software and whatnot. Um, so I just thought that that sounded cool and interesting. And so I checked the box and, you know, the next thing I knew the program started, I showed up there and there were other people, you know, it was a small, small program, but a few other people, maybe five or six other people with me. Um, I don't even remember who of my classmates it was. Um, 
And I show up there and I walk into this TV studio and I see control rooms and cameras and lights and all these people bustling around doing these really interesting things. And I walked in the door and I, and I, it would just was immediately apparent to me that uh, I was going to make movies for the rest of my life. Like it never occurred to me before I was a kid. My options that had been explained to me as career choices were like, you know, lawyer, doctor, astronaut, fireman, you know, like the generic kind of, uh, these are the people in your neighborhood from Mr. Rogers. And, uh, you know, here, I knew I didn't want to do TV or work in a TV studio, but somehow it all just came together in my mind between my love of books and my love of photography and seeing a TV studio that, oh yeah, movies, like people make those, like that's somebody's job and I want that to be my job. So what kind of equipment did you have when you got into that, into that studio? I saw some of the, uh, the photos that you had, um, somewhere in our research, I had seen stuff that I had seen when I was a kid. So I'm curious, like, were you using a toaster? I, no, we didn't have a toaster until I was in college. Um, th- those pictures that were included in the interview that you must be referring to um, were—I did not provide those, um, so they were not like Foiled. taken by me or by my program at the time. You know, someone else just filled that in as B-roll, you know, as generic kind of TV public access studio type of stuff. Um, it would have been three quarter inch. You know, I think I, I uh, remember tape, but it was definitely, you know, a pedestal studio cameras being fed to a control room. Um, but, you know, the editing was tape to tape, linear. Deck to deck. That's how yeah. I started for sure. And, uh, Did you have a, like a... Um, we had a switcher. There you go. Um, I remember doing a three camera shoot, which was like my final project that I had written. And um, I had put a ton into it in terms of pre-production and like bringing all these props and set dressing. And like, I didn't really have a crew to help me in prep. Like we had defined roles once we got there and I had people, I had a bunch of my friends were going to be extras and a bunch of people were going to bring all these things. And like, nobody came through on me and I was heartbroken because I had put in so much into this, you know, production that I was really excited about. And so the, um, I was so upset and the, uh, the mentor who run the program, he's like, all right, let's work with what we got and let's revise the idea here. And we threw away the script because the script didn't work without the elements that didn't come together. And, you know, he steered me towards writing something on the spot about how I felt right then and there. And the, the scene was supposed to be someone's birthday party. So we turned it into, um, I threw a birthday party and nobody came. <laughs> that sounded like, right. <laughs> so we had the decorations and we had the banners and we had, you know, all the props and everything. And I just had my one actor and, uh, who was my best friend at the time. And, uh, we, I remember, you know, it was very thinking on the fly. And I remember doing the switching. Like I remember being in the room and having, you know, one was a wide shot and one was a close up on her. And, and I remember telling the, the technical director like when doing a live cut basically when you know switch and then we I did you know some crazy wipe type of thing and 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 the speed at which I did in the moment at which I did it like the mentor was so impressed with my um I guess my intuition and my talent for it of of just um feeling it out and knowing when to do like he remarked on it like it impressed him like on the spot and it had to do with my like 
decision about the switching. And I so remember that moment of like being reinforced that I was in my element and someone else recognized that, you know, the person who was the expert was like, wow, you're really good at this. It's very healthy when you're, when you're younger to yes. have someone reinforce uh, a creative and technical mix like that, like, mm-hmm. like live switching or editing any of that fun stuff. And he gave me, uh, his name is Mark Cavanaugh and I've lost touch with him and, and his name's common enough that I can't just like find him on Facebook or the internet. Um, he gave me the best advice, that, amongst the best advice that, I, that I'd ever gotten and I still give it to people when people say, you know, what, what's some of your, you know, uh, soundbite advice. Um, he, t- he told me, you know, you have what it takes. He told my parents, you have what it takes you know, to, to do this for a living and pursue this. And I can see how serious you are about this, but it's a really, really tough business. And you're going to have to make a lot of sacrifices. And basically he said, the only reason that you should pursue filmmaking is if you can not see yourself doing anything else. If there's anything else you can do or there's anything else you'd like to do, do that. Well, I think we'll end, <laughs> the, I think we'll end the show there. But it's been a great one. <laughs> And I agree with him, you know, at the time I didn't really know what he meant by it, but I, I still trusted it. And, and I said, okay. And I gave it some serious thought and I was like, no, there's no, I, I, that does strengthen my convictions hearing that there's nothing else I want to do. And my husband and I had an examination of that after nine 11, there was no work in New York for years. And we were already, you know, very established freelancers who'd never done anything else you know, I'd been out of school for, what, six years by then? You couldn't just go work as a stockbroker? That's crazy. Yeah, and it's like, well, what else could we do? You know, and that was like the height of runaway production, and there was no work in New York for like nearly a year, like none. And it's like, well, should we go to Toronto? And then it's like, that. no, we're just chasing the temporary situation. Should we move to L.A.? You know, we'd really like to stay in New York. And it's like, well, we'll move to LA before we would leave the film business. Or, or the other th- option was, well, is there anything else that we could see ourselves doing? As and- usual, LA, last resort. Right <laughs> before I become a truck driver, maybe I'll move to Los Angeles. Well, I would move to LA now. Um, at the, where I was at then and how I didn't know as much about LA at the time as I do now. N- that's one of my other pieces of advice for people. I'm get- from Queens. So you can talk as bad about Los Angeles as you like. And he's from Virginia. No, so. if I felt badly about Los Angeles, <laughs> I'd be honest about that. But other advice that I give, you know, newly great graduating college students, and especially on the East coast is should I move to LA? Uh, and the answer moved to New Orleans. <laughs> Again, you're just chasing the temporary yeah, well. situation. And I say, sh- they sh- you know, should I move to LA? And I say, yes. I'm like, are you in this for the long haul? Do you want a career in this? You know, uh, otherwise I feel like New York is, you know, a, we've always, my husband and I've always been prepared for the eventual inevitability of having to move to LA. And I didn't realize that until I was entrenched enough in New York that I'd be giving up a lot in New York to start over in LA, which doesn't make sense for me to do that until I have some milestone in my career. Like I've shot an HBO show or I've shot, you know, the movie that won the the breakout indie that won the Oscar or something that universally known that you can take with you for the rest of your life, no matter where you go. Right. It doesn't make sense to, to move from, you know, struggling indie DP in New York with 20 years of contacts to, you know, struggling indie DP in LA. Like, frankly, I'm doing better here than most of my counterparts in LA because, you know, in terms of the percentage of work in the population, the workforce in LA, you know, the, 
work's just been fleeing LA rub for it years. In, Jindra, rub <laughs> it in. It makes sense for total rookies to be in New York or LA because there's so much like low budget stuff that's happening. You can jump on stuff, you can learn different stuff. It's that middle that middle group that uh, that gets tougher when, then, when then the competition you, begins. You have more at stake by leaving, you know. So that's why I tell students, yes, go ahead and Make your start in L.A. Don't start in New York just to have to leave New York and then have to restart in L.A. You opened up an interesting question when you were asking the other question. What sacrifices have you made on your journey? So when I got out of film school, there was no HD or DV. And you, as a DP, you didn't have a reel when you graduated. Like you didn't have a copy of most of the stuff that you shot. Um, You didn't, you couldn't get hot, you know, you couldn't just buy a $5,000 camera and, and get hired on jobs that, that were looking for people with the camera. So I was like, okay, I'll work as an electrician. I love lighting. I'm not an AC. Um, well, actually I was working as a gaffer at first and then ended up taking a step back to be the, the smaller fish in the bigger pond of, of being an electrician when I sort of hit a wall as a gaffer that I wasn't really progressing or learning anything new because I wasn't working for people who knew anything more than I did, including the DPs that I was working for. So I was like, okay, this is my side job. And, you know, I think it was around the time people started to have pagers. Other than that, you were like waiting at home for the phone to ring. You didn't go out. You didn't have a life. If you weren't working, you were waiting for work. And just sort of, you know, being a 22-year-old, like how do you learn the self, you know, self-employed business? Like how do I get hired? And how often is it okay to call people? And do they want me to call them? And is it weird? And all that kind of stuff. So I... Didn't really make much money, not much money. I mean, that's an understatement. I mean, I I, I lived off of about $14,000 a year for like four or five years out of school in living in New York City. So, you know, I lived an hour out in Staten Island and sharing a, a place with three other people. If I missed the ferry on my way to work, I would blow my entire day's pay on a car service, you know, because I missed the boat by five minutes and the next boat doesn't you know, or by one minute and the next boat doesn't leave for an hour or on my way home, you know, the boats only ran once an hour, you know, between certain hours. So if I was ready to go and the next one didn't leave for an hour, you know, I was just getting very little sleep, but also I was just living off of like bagels and and rice-a-roni, you know, like buying 25 cent bagels on Monday afternoon between four and seven, putting them in the freezer and eating nothing but peanut butter and jelly bagels for three days and never going out, never having the social life that is the main appeal of living in New York because I living off of credit cards, taking out cash advances on credit cards to, you know, buy groceries and um, racking up debt, not starting to pay off my loans, you know, so, you know, it was definitely a starving artist lifestyle for years, which now describing it sounds miserable, but I wasn't miserable at the time. It was just, I had a, a, a goal in mind and, and I wasn't going to, you know, get some regular job that wasn't in keeping with, with the direction that I wanted to go. And I just saw it as, you know, something that I needed to do and it was worth it for all the days that, you know, I did get on set. So, uh. Did you ever do any more live broadcast after you got out of school and college? Nope. Yeah. No, I mean, I turned down a couple of jobs. Like I, I did some freelance um, event lighting and and camera uh, through a company that hired freelancers, and they kept offering me a full time job because uh, I'm a good worker and reliable and this and that. And and I was like, no, I don't. I don't want to, you know, work for this company and a full time. But this is my, you know, survival job or this is my side job. That worked well for a while because. It, before 9-11, uh, the 
work in New York was even more reliably seasonal than it is now, where there was basically, it, it's kind of gone back into this pattern um, now, but for a while it was just, you know, the pattern was a mess of, of there's, you know, with the weather, there's much less work in the winter. Um, and most of the work is in the, the summer and the fall. And then the uh, events calendar is the opposite of that. So y- you could pick up a lot of freelance event stuff in the winter. And then when summer came, you fell out of that freelancer pool. They didn't, they didn't miss you because that was when they were slowing down. So it was very compatible to stay in both, you know, for several years without them being like, oh, she's not around anymore. We're not going to call her. So when I was living in Orlando in roughly 99 to 04, um, that was something I experienced was that in the wintertime, it was still warm in Florida. So all the New York producers would schedule their shoots in Florida and go mm-hmm. elsewhere where they could enjoy the weather. But in the summer, it was unworkable in Florida. It was in too Orlando. hot. Yeah. And it rained every afternoon uh, between 12 and 2. You could just stand by with your watch and just, uh, if it's not raining, just stand by. Mm-hmm. Here it comes. Mm-hmm. I also did events to cover a gap between theater work and film work. And, uh, you know, all the same, you know, different vocabulary for some stuff, but all the same skill set and uh, turned out to be good. Yeah, it was a good good thing for, for a while. Um, so, yeah, those are my main, main sacrifices was financial. And, and, it t- and it takes a long time to get anywhere. Another piece of advice that I got that turned out to be true uh, was graduating film school that it takes about 10 years to get seriously established to be like firmly rooted in, you know, where you wanted to be all along and and uh that turned out to be i hate it when you're so right it turned out to be true for myself i mean that sounds like so long when you get out and like no i'm gonna you know and you, and you can point to some success stories that you know about because they're in the press because they're exceptional but then you know except for people like that it, it pretty much turned out to be true for me and most most of my peers that it takes about 10 years to, to really get established I'd never heard it put like that before, but I can see, and obviously you've had a tremendous level of success, um, so it take this for the comparison it's meant to be, but I can see, like, I, my high school had a TV production studio, so I spent all four years of high school doing all the live broadcast, all the deck-to-deck I could get my hands on, everything, and then, you know, again, I did some work as an electrician for a good long time. My license plate said five wire. <laughs> From when I started working as a camera operator, it's been just about, 10 years since I graduated to find my flow and my, and, and my way in, in a way that I think that it's probably going to last a long time. Mm-hmm. Crossing my fingers because you never know. Um, you know, I could have my legs smashed tomorrow by a bus on my way out of New York City. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, think it's a, I think it's amazing. I think you've got a lot of really good insight uh, to how this whole thing works. And if nothing else, you've got the character building funny parts of your autobiography in the future. <laughs> oh, good, thanks. So you came, you came up as an electrician, a gaffer. Mm-hmm. Now you're behind the camera. We've talked to what six or seven DPs now. Every one of them had a different journey mm-hmm. uh, to get to DP. So I want to ask you a little bit about that. We talked to Tom Weston mm-hmm. on Tuesday. He was a second uh, mm-hmm. for nine years or so, and then an op for fifteen years or so before he made the jump. We've talked to a key to a gaffer who went straight to DP. We've had ACs that went. We had a key. We uh, we know a key grip that has uh, become a full time DP. We had Haskell Wexler, who's just always been around. He started mm-hmm. doing. I, news. I think he was born a DP. Uh, <laughs> think, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he he did. He got to start doing uh, newsreel stuff. Mm-hmm. So everybody's had a different a, a, a different path to DP. You don't mm-hmm. see that in a lot of other jobs on set. 
That um, drove me crazy when I was getting out of school and I wanted some answers of like, what what do I do? How do, how do I do path? it? What's the exactly. answer? There Where do no I right go? And nobody had an answer for me. Well, what do you like, think oh. are the most important skills? Are there ever times where you're like, gee, I wish I had spent a few years as a first AC or gee, I wish I had uh, done this or, you know, are there any, like, what, what do you think have been the most, what are the building blocks to be a good DP? Um, being a DP is one third technical, one third artistic and one third managerial. And a lot of people don't realize that the managerial is as big a part as the others. A lot of people get caught up in the technology because it's in front of you all the time and changing all the time. It's the topic that everyone is talking about all the time. It's the way that we relate to each other. It's, it's much easier to talk about the, the newest camera and, you know, the S log and the gear and these new lenses and all this other stuff than it is to talk about your creative process and what inspires you. I have gotten a lot of confidence out of the fact that I was an electrician on bigger sets. Um, I think there's a, a intimidation of, of moving forward of not knowing what you're stepping into and not knowing what's expected of you and not knowing what you don't know. And that, you know, sort of the fraud syndrome of like, are they going to find out that I don't, that I haven't done this before. I don't really know what I'm doing, but having been an electrician on bigger sets on, you know, t uh, TV shows and sex in the city and law and order and studio movies, I seen it firsthand and I've been a part of it and I understand it. And so now that I'm stepping into bigger projects, I'm not afraid of knowing like, okay, what do I talk to props about? And what do I talk to set dressers about? Or, you know, what do I talk to the line producer about versus what do I talk to the production accountant about? You know, like the, the, the delineations and the hierarchy, things that you're, you're just not going to know if you haven't done it before. So I've, I've seen some talented DPs crash and burn who've never come up through the crew ranks that don't really understand how to communicate, um, don't really understand the importance of all the other people on the team, you know, people who just came out of film school or bought a DSLR and have a great vision. But if you don't know how to communicate that vision in, in an efficient way that's going to make your day, you know, to a team of, of, of 40 to 60 people, you know, you can be the most talented person in the world. If you can't make those ideas in reality, then you're not an effective DP. If you can't talk to people, you know, you're, if you can't talk to your crew and get them, learn how to talk to them nicely at that, mm -hmm. and learn if you've never done it, you know, you may, you may kind of cross some lines and, and then you won't get what you want as fast as maybe you could if you had just figured out how to, how to treat them properly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I've had a lot of my crew give me positive feedback that for a DP who used to be a gaffer that I'm good at not micromanaging them, which is another trap that a lot of people fall into is, you know, being a control freak. And, you know, I, my leadership style is, you know, to inspire the people that are working for me to, to contribute. Like when you're, you're, when your head is in the game, when you feel like your contribution is valued, you are more engaged and you are more creative. If, if someone's going to listen to your ideas and you know that that's welcome, then, you know, you're more invested. And, and I feel like if I'm going to go tell everyone exactly what to do, then I'm limiting myself to the ideas that occur to me me only at that time and in that place versus there's a lot of talented people around. If I, you know, I'm still in charge, I still have the say, but they, you know, feel open 
to pitch their ideas to me, then I'd be like, oh yeah, I like that. We're going to go with that one, but not that one. But like knowing how to turn people down in a way that doesn't hurt their feelings or doesn't shut them down for next time. You know, it, it just uh, pe- people skills and communication and leadership is really, you know, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts when you inspire your team to contribute. Which is part of that one third managerial you were yeah. referencing earlier. You talked a little bit about um, being an electrician on Sex and the City. You did that for, what, five seasons? Mm-hmm. Um, now that you're doing more features and, and documentary, do you miss that uh, that regular schedule, the reg- you know the repetitive locations and uh, being able to schedule something five, six months down the line? Or No. No, that, that was always a stepping stone for me. You know, I, I never, even when I was doing that, I was thinking about what's the next student film that I can be shooting or, or finding out about doing. So I, I was never looking at it as a, as a routine. Um, yeah, stability. I, I got over the stability discomfort within a couple of years, you know, and, and I've seen that being probably the biggest issue for people getting out of film school is whether they are cut out to be a freelancer or not, because it's certainly not for everybody. Um, I've seen really talented filmmakers uh, who can just, just cannot hack the freelancer mindset and lifestyle and and at first i was disappointed in those people like oh come on you're you you're gonna be great at this but i realized like that's that's their choice like there's so much that goes into living that way being willing to live that way embracing living that way i i i I love my freedom and it's taken me a while to get to the point where i will commit to things that are not work and be like okay i'm going to burning man like i'm not available in the end of august like i'm turning down work for that and and being prepared to face the ramifications on my on my career of that has is taken a long time to get comfortable with that and then of course with my husband being in the business as well i'm also dealing with his comfort level to that kind of thing so that's kind of been an individual journey as well as a journey as a, a couple of you know people who are life and business partners together. Do you find that that still gets tested when you go someplace to do something you want to do and you get called for work while you're out doing the thing that you want to do? Like, does that test that a little bit? It, it does. It depends on how strong my convictions are about the choice that I'm making. Like last year was the first time that I did decide to go to Burning Man after wanting to go for like 10 years and, and choosing not to go for that reason, to be like, it's the worst possible time of year to be away from work on the east coast but then last year i was like okay i feel in my heart that i am meant to do this and whatever i lose by job opportunities by doing this is like things happen for a reason and i'm gonna get what i'm supposed to get because of what i wasn't available to get because i did this you know i just felt that that was the right choice for me um that it was an important enough priority in my creative and artistic development to actually have the experience of, of going to Burning Man. Like if you're going to be an artist, you need to have new creative and artistic experiences and not, you know, just live your life on a film set all the time. Um, you but, went for the dancing. You can tell us. <laughs> no, the costumes. The actually. costumes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that you and your husband went to Burning Man mm-hmm. and, uh, and that he's also in the business. Mm-hmm. What is that like? How do you balance both of you being in in the? Is is he is he also a freelancer? Yeah, he's a steady cam operator and so, camera operator. How do you balance two unstable lives coming together to make one stable union? You know, uh, I'll start with the most important piece of advice that I give people, which is live beneath your means, save a lot of money, uh, do not get yourself into a high overhead situation. Like you, you're 
income is going to ebb and flow and you need to be prepared for that. You know, I think a lot of people who get on episodic television for a couple of years, they're like, okay, I'm making this income and I can rely on it and I'm going to buy a bigger house or I'm going to, you know, take out a home equity loan to like, you know, uh, remodel my yard or whatever. And then you have all these bills. We've always strived as a philosophy as a couple to have enough money in the bank that we're not making job decisions be financial decisions that, you know, we want to take a project because we want to and because it's the right project or the right choice for our career, not because, you know, oh, I, I need something, anything right now, like to, to, you know, or I can't pay my mortgage. So that, that's been something that we've been on, on the same page about all along. Otherwise, you know, it, it's really important that a couple is on the same page about the level of priority that your career has. Um, I know a lot of people, especially when I was an electrician and most of my peers were older men, that most people were divorced because people get into a relationship with someone they think is great and then they have kids and they, they think that they're going to be okay with what they are conceiving their future schedule to be and then 10 years go by and then their kids don't know their father and the wife is like, why am I married to this person who's never around and the family falls apart. So, you know, I think that, I, so I can see how that can happen, but something that, that Alec and I have always shared is the understanding the mutual respect of the priority of like, you know, there are times when my, my career comes before him, you know, and he gets that because there are times that his career comes before me in terms of, you know, the level of attention I might be getting or me being around or, you know, he does episodic TV. So he, he could be on a, on a show for 10 months and, you know, I make jokes about my absentee husband and, you know, but you need to find ways to, you know, have an emotional support system, you know, with your friends and your family outside of that, that you're not resenting the person who for never being around. You're like, okay, I'm glad, I'm happy that you're getting this offer because it will be good for your career, future career prospects, or it's something you want to do, or, oh, we'll get a whole lot of money in the bank by you working for this much for this period of time that will give us more flexibility for our future or when you're out of work or, oh, I can take some, you know, a really tiny project that I'm enthused about that I'm making next to no money because, you know, he's working on TV for 10 months. So, you know, it's, it's a give and take and you, you just both need to be understanding about that kind of stuff. Have you worked together on a project? And is that good or bad? It's good. It's actually how we met. A lot of people ask that, oh, how could you possibly work with your spouse? Like we get along so well that that's, we're very compatible. So if you're on a show and you need a steady cam op to come in for a couple of weeks, he's your first call, not your last call. He's my first call, but he's usually not available. Well, so he, he would always be my first call, but I'd say of all the days of the year that I hire a steady cam operator, uh, he's not available more often than he is available. So I end up working with a lot of his Which colleagues. is one of those good problems. Yes, exactly. Maybe we can talk about some of your, uh, your professional choices along the way. You've done some work with Alan Curris. 
yeah, I, when I was working in, as an electrician, I was fortunate enough to get hired on two different projects that Ellen was the DP for. She was already a, a role model of mine, and just in terms of, of being the, uh, the most visible working woman DP at the time, at least on the East Coast. So I just showed up on a commercial one day and got in the elevator. I didn't even know, you know, just my best boy or gaffer or someone just booked me and told me where to show up. And, and I get in the elevator and Ellen Curse is in the elevator. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God, it's Kurt. You know, so I introduced myself to her and, and, you know, told her that I was an aspiring DP and, you know, she was very friendly and very open. And of course I observed her a lot. And then when um, the opportunity to work on Analyze That came up and the fact that she was the DP of that, I like really wanted to get on that. And so I, I got to work on that. I wasn't full-time. I was a day player, which is most of my work as an electrician, including on Sex in the City, was was always as a day player. There's very few projects I ever worked on full time because I was always working on the shooting thing. Um, did you have any? Do you have any favorite Ellen Curse films? I really like Summer of Sam. is is my favorite that that she shot. Of course, Eternal Sunshine is so um, innovative and wacky, and I, I like mind trip movies that like turn your brain inside out and. I really liked her documentary as well, Nerakun, The Betrayal, about uh, the sort of secret occupation of Laos during the Vietnam War and the ramifications on the Laotian people and uh, one family in particular, story that you've never seen before and, and the way it, that, that she directed and um, it got a lot of attention and that was really good. I saw that several times. Uh, for me, it was Blow. That mm-hmm. was the first movie that I, because that came out when I was still in film school or practically... So um, I saw that. It was one of the first American cinematographers I ever read. And so I got to get the whole rundown. And, and on that film in particular, she used a whole bunch of different stocks to emulate mm-hmm. these different time periods. Time periods, yeah. And to me, coming from the video world, as I had described earlier, doing a lot of live broadcasts, you know, deck deck, switching, toaster stuff, like this was all new and very fresh. Mm-hmm. So for me, it always has been blow. Yeah, she's always been fresh. I mean, that's the main thing that, that I admire about her, and I think that most people do, is, is uh, always, always trying new things. Like even Personal Velocity that was you know, shot on a, I think it was like on a Sony PD-150 or something. I was going to say DVX-100. I was like, no, it was before that. <laughs> so, that's going back. Yeah. So speaking of cameras, how were, uh, what was the process of you being one of the first people to shoot with a Red One? Um, that was being in the right place at the right time, but also being knowledgeable enough to impress people, (laughs) to be honest. I was at Sundance, which is, uh, I go to Sundance every year. I recommend doing so to, uh, freelancers, especially if you're someone that people can hire, like a DP, a, a, a composer, it, it, it's harder to get work when you're a director because you are expected to sort of originate your own work. But if you're something if you're someone that has something to offer that people need to know you, then uh, it's great to just go to Sundance. A lot of people think, oh, um, I, there's, I have no reason to go if I don't have a movie. But it's like, no, that's hogwash. Like the best jobs I get every year for years were, were because of people that I met at Sundance. Big networking um, note, roger that. Yeah. Is that uh, also for crafts that are not necessarily as technical, like uh, production management, uh, you know, the ones that run in the numbers? Yeah, actually, writers and producers are always meeting up. Like, producers are always on the lookout for new scripts, you know, producers who develop material and writers are obviously always looking for people who can get their movie made. So one of the biggest sort of, 
you know, draws in, at Sundance of people looking for one another, writers and producers. But yeah, sure. Line, if you can be hired and you have a skill, line producers, production managers, even gaffers and uh, sound people, like there's all, all sorts of people around all the time. The most people that I meet are DPs and composers actually, <laughs> but, and, and some actors go as well. So I was at Sundance. One of my roommates that year invited me to a house party um, which turned out to be the house of uh, Mark Peterson from Off Hollywood, who I did not know yet. And Ted Shilowitz was there, who became, you know, the, the leader of the rebellion for, for Red, the, the front man spokesperson for Red Digital Cinema. Is this the same Mark Peterson that uh, ended up doing a bunch of reality TV work along the way? As a DP? Uh, DP and nope. the director. Nope. Okay. There's uh, two different Mark Petersons. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. very good friends with the, old, with the other Mark Peterson, but <laughs> uh, if it's the same one. The Mark Peterson, who's a DP, is um, with the T. Peter, it might be two S's. And this Mark Peterson is with a D. P-E-D-E. Thank you and for the clarification. And he's a producer. Sorry to and interrupt. Please continue. No, that's fine. <laughs> so I'm at a house party at Sundance, and I talk to who turns out to be Ted Shilowitz, who was you know nobody to me or to most people people at the time in the kitchen and he's like oh so you're a dp and i said yeah and he's like do you shoot mostly hd or film and i was like no i try and stay away from hd they said why i was like well anything that's shooting on hd there's just too many sacrifices and it's just so inferior that anyone who's even willing to shoot on hd like doesn't care what their movie looks like and is not something that i want to be involved with (laughs) this was in 2006 and so he started asking me like theoretical questions like, well, if you could have a digital camera, you know, that didn't have, you know, all these limitations, like what, what would you want it to be? You know, if, if there were no, you know, limitations and I started rattling off, you know, traits like 35 millimeter depth of field and extended dynamic range and, you know, resolution, you know, approaching film and, you know, extended color space, all these things that were exactly the, uh, ways that film still exceeded digital at that time. And then he started asking me about, well, what about the Genesis? And then I was like, well, the problem with the Genesis, is, and I was very up on CML at the time and like all the cameras that were out there. For the record, that's the cinematographer's mailing list for those who don't know uh, oh, that acronym. Yes. We keep getting yelled at for our acronyms I, on the oh, show. Oh, sure, so. <laughs> that's a good point. And so I, I was, you know, admittedly very knowledgeable about um, all the different cameras and camera systems that were out there at the time. So I must have impressed Ted with how much I knew about this stuff. So he kept the conversation going and it was an interesting conversation. It was a kind of, it was not the same old, same old, you know, HD versus film conversation that you'd had like five times a day uh, <laughs> at one of these events. And I was interested and he was interested. We just kept talking. It seemed like for hours. And then at the end of the night, uh, he's like, come with me. I want to give you something. And so we're walking by Mark Peterson on the way to the bedroom. I'm like, what's going on here? And he's, and Ted says to Mark, I'm bringing her in. And so he goes into the closet and he presents me with a red digital cinema t-shirt. Um, he's like, I'm going to give you a gift. And he's like, and you don't even really know the significance of, of what this is going to be yet. And um, we followed up after Sundance and I came to LA um, and went to a meeting uh, at Oakley and signed a non-disclosure agreement. And they invited me to, uh, to be basically the resident DP at the booth at NAB 
that year, which is the year that the camera was announced. And so I was, I had a cheat sheet in my back pocket. No one told me to do this. This was just my own preparation of, of all of the pixel counts and bit depths and every single spec on every other camera that was either available or announced that everyone was going to ask me, how does this new camera that doesn't exist yet compare to this, that, or why is it different? And so there were a bunch of different people working at the booth with different areas of expertise and like depending on who approached us what random person we started talking to depending on what kind of questions they had and what their uh, areas of interest were we would like refer them to one another to be like oh this is the post guy let me have him talk to michael cioni or you know or this is the you know indie guy and the blogger guy let me have him talk to mike curtis or this is the color science guy. Let me have him talk to Stuart English and be like, oh, this is the DP. I'll go talk to Gendra. Or this is the camera rental company. Go talk to Gendra. This is the Sony engineer. <laughs> go talk to Gendra. Right. So that got me a lot of visibility and, and cemented my relationship uh, with Red. And, and I became known as, when that camera came out, it was like so different than everything else that no one really knew what to do with it. It had a really steep learning curve. So I was one of the people who knew it first. And so I got a lot of attention for that. Did that uh, translate into some early work with the red? I imagine. Um, yeah, not as much as I would have hoped. I, uh, or, or at least not high enough profile projects that I was hoping for that that people would find me and uh, and want me to work with them because of that knowledge. It, it was more like, oh well, you know, oh let's hire Gendra to teach the DP we really want how to use that camera instead of hiring Gendra to shoot it, kind of thing. Sometimes it's still hard to be to break out into you know I've heard other cinematographers just say well I guess I just wasn't a big enough cameraman for the to 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 shoot that movie and sometimes um, sometimes that's a hard thing to kind of like be big enough from what I'm gathering by the same token that didn't uh, that it hasn't really stopped you at all you've you've continued to push and continue to grow bigger mm-hmm. along the way mm-hmm. how did that translate into working with the Viper in its early days. Also a Sundance connection. The Viper was showing uh, in a booth, like had a little setup thing at Sundance. Uh, there was a gallery on Main Street called the uh, HD House um, that had a bunch of different camera and technology things and the Viper was there and I'd heard about it. I hadn't seen it before. Um, I'd seen some test footage and, and clips of different you know presentations and stuff in New York. So I went there and I met Dave Stump. I'm trying to remember... Did I meet him for the first time there? Or that's like, might've been the second time that I met him. But when we be, we became friends, we were hanging out around Sundance. Uh, Dave Stump, ASC, who's the head of the um, camera subcommittee of the ASC technology committee. Uh, we are a- interviewing him Tuesday. Oh, okay, cool. We're having some scheduling uh, things, but we'll, hopefully we'll be able to lock that down and uh, sit down with him. His new book just came out. Yep, it's on my to-do list to buy it. It's in my backpack right oh, now. Oh, I'd love to see it. I um, want to look at yeah, it before sure, I leave. no problem. Um, yeah, Dave is one of my mentors and sort of became that through going to Sundance and then I kept running into him at all the trade shows and stuff. Yeah, you know what? He's the one who told me, come over to the HD house and, and see the Viper. So he introduced, he had worked with the Viper already. So he personally introduced me to the Viper people. Mark Chiolis, who's working at Grass Valley at the time and said, you know, hey, she's a you know, upcoming DP who's really good with all the technology and she wants to get her hand on the Viper. And so uh, they were talking to me a lot and and wanted to know how they could, you know, support me on some upcoming low budget projects. And then um, 
I met someone else that Sundance who was a producer who um, we were talking about the Viper and he had already been shooting a film on the Viper. Like they'd already started in New York. Actually they'd wrapped, but they had a lot of extensive reshoots and pickup shots and they ended up wanting me to shoot the the pickup. So I ended up reshooting 30% of the movie on the Viper. So that, that all came together because of being at Sundance and knowing the camera and knowing Dave and it, it's just all, you know, it's all about connections. Um, I can think of a, two movies that I, off the top of my head that are shot on the Viper, uh, I believe Collateral and um, the Cloverfield. Uh, Cloverfield was shot on the Viper for anything that had CG effects in it. Okay. They would intercut that with any dialogue stuff that did not have effects was shot on the HVX 200 mm-hmm. um, because... Um, uh, well, one, because of the resolution that they wanted to do the visual effects for the monster for Cloverfield, but because the nature of Cloverfield was that it was told from a first person's, you know, shaking Yeah, they camera. wanted a tiny little thing, yeah. And but, Collateral used different cameras for different purposes. They, the, the Viper wasn't the only camera that they used. What they else also they used, use? uh, I think it's the F900, and I, I know they used some film for some of it. Probably I, any slow motion. I don't remember. I just remember finding it really interesting that they were using different cameras like different film stocks. Like because of their inherent look and strengths and weaknesses that they, depending on the shooting situation or depending on the scene, were, were choosing different cameras based on that. Well, we also shot film on Cloverfield to shoot any plates for like elements. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, plants that would fall out of windows or just little pickups. Uh, that was all shot on film. Mm-hmm. And then again, mixed with those two other formats, Viper and uh, HVX. So it was an interesting time. I guess this was circa 2007 or eight mm-hmm. when this was happening, when when they could, when they were doing that, I think as the exploratory form of digital cinematography was coming into into its own, you know, people were still trying to figure out what's the best way to do this. And at the time, Maybe that was the solution, using different formats for different scenarios mm-hmm. to get the best overall product. So along the way, you've done a lot of interviews and done a lot of public speaking. Mm-hmm. Did you always have that knack? I mean, you come in here and you sit down, your answers are very concise. Have you always been that way? Or did it take a little time to kind of work on how to do that? I was always comfortable with that. I um, Well, to, to answer the question like narrowly I was, but there, I can expound upon it a, a little bit in an interesting way. I was a an actor as a kid, like I was the lead in the school plays and did some acting in high school as well. You know, if there had been a more robust video program or if I had been uh, born later that video was more entrenched in high schools, I probably wouldn't have even bothered with theater because I would have been so focused on all the video, but because that didn't, there wasn't enough of that to keep me busy. I also you know, did that, did the acting side of thing as something that was related, you know, to movies and movie making. So yeah, I've never been shy. I was like the camp counselor who knew all the songs and, and led the entire, you know, group of kids and, and teaching all the songs kind of thing. Um, I'm a very type A, you know, outgoing person. One thing I was not comfortable with that took me a while to get comfortable with was, you know, I used to call it schmoozing. You know, now it's networking, but it had a negative connotation to me at the time. Like when I was in college, you know, I, I wasn't comfortable selling myself. And there was a, you know, a, a, a colleague in film school who 
basically got a lot further, a lot faster than I did with his, even his film school career because he knew how to present himself. He knew how to talk himself up. And I just saw him, you know, getting ahead much faster and in a way that I resented to be like, you know, why are they choosing him and, and not me? Like, you know, his work is, is no better than mine, but you know, now I see in retrospect, people wouldn't know that because he was the aggressive one who was vocal and confident and outgoing. And I was just hoping that, you know, people would come to me because of my work or my reputation or whatever. I I didn't, I was passive and not active in, in that way. And I, at the time I wished that that would have worked, you know, and, and I came to see how it wasn't working and I came to see, okay, very concretely, these people are getting ahead for exactly this reason. I'm not getting ahead and I'm not doing that. I don't want to do that. I wish I didn't have to do that, but I guess I'm going to have to do that. So I became comfortable with that. Like it was very uncomfortable at first. And I had a lot of, you know, growing pains with it and a learning curve of like, you know, how to be aggressive enough without being too aggressive, you know, how to not alienate people or not be pushy or presumptuous or all these other things and, and, you know, be more visible. So I, I came to learn and I wish they would teach you this more in film school, you know, that you are the CEO of you Inc and you as a freelancer are, you know, a self-employed business and, and you, you have your own success at stake and you need to actually put a lot of effort into developing your business. And if you don't do that, then you're not, gonna get anywhere it goes back to what you were saying earlier about you know what does what can you learn from film school or that one of the things that is not taught is how do you be a freelancer how do you figure out how to live off of an unstable in an unstable business Mm -hmm. but uh, along the way you were able to to get yourself out there going from college and take on new ideas and take on different projects but beyond that how did your cinematic style start to evolve and grow or continue to evolve and grow? What, what things were you doing to kind of uh, flex those muscles? Mm-hmm. I remember being at a point when I was creatively stuck that I felt like my work was very competent, but not very imaginative or innovative. And, and I think that came from the routine of being a TV electrician that I learned how to do things quickly and efficiently. And what would work fast. And when I was feeling under pressure for time, I would go to lighting by numbers. You know, I I would go to things I knew would work in a certain scenario that would look fine, that would look good, that would look appropriate to the story, but were not necessarily fresh and, and certainly were not risky because I didn't, you know, stopping and thinking and doing something different it might not work. And if it didn't work, then I had to take time to shape it up to get it into how it would work. And then I was afraid of being judged for the time that it was taking or uh, appearing to not look as though I knew what I was doing or had a plan, you know, that I wasn't looking like I was floundering around trying to find it. So that sort of fear of being judged or how I was perceived sort of drove my lighting style at first to a point where I got bored with it and I got used to it. And it was like, got to the point where like, okay, people are not hiring you to do the most efficient lighting setup. They're hiring you to do the best by, by the film and by the project. And that doesn't always mean, you know, fastest is, is best. And, you know, I, I sort of got over the mindset that 
that being risky didn't mean I was going to be slow. You know, I am fast. Like no matter what I do, I'm still going to be fast, but to not just hold myself back in not allowing myself the time and space and openness to think. So that that was, that took some growth and pushing and introspection and, and sort of how do I, where am I at and how can I be different? And that was kind of brought about by a really provocative question by one of my mentors, uh, Claudio Miranda. We've mentioned him before on the podcast. We were walking around, we uh, shot something. I was shooting the documentary uh, portion of an advertising campaign and he was shooting the broadcast spot. So we were at the same place in the same time on the same sets. I wasn't really, it wasn't really a behind the scenes thing. It was its own side thing at the same time back when, you know, branded content and new media was new and people were just trying a whole bunch of new different kind of stuff. And we got to know each other through this campaign and I'd already admired his work even before I met him. He was one of like, just in terms of style, he was one of my favorites. This, this was before he, he had a movie that had been released, like just based on his music videos and stuff. Like he was a DP whose look and work I really responded to. He's a DP who puts a lot of effort into getting really original style. Like he's very stylized, super Mm -hmm. stylized. Uh, For those who don't know, Oblivion was one of the the latest great, Mm -hmm. great big features. Um, uh, he got the Oscar for Life of Pi. That's the one I'm thinking of, yes. Um, he shot The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which I think was his second movie, wow. his second feature film. He came from the music video and yep. the commercial world. Yep. Yeah, his his first film was, um, I think it was Failure to Launch, like oh. a romantic comedy with uh, Matthew McConaughey and, I, I, and Sarah Jessica Parker. I day played on that oh, okay. like, for just a minute. I never knew it was him and, and until you just said it. Wow. You should fact check that, but I think, I think that's <laughs> right. So he... We were talking and he asked me, no, actually it wasn't a question. There's two things he said to me that made a big impact on me and I was just mixing them up. He looked at my reel. I asked him to look at my reel and, and, and let me know what he thought. Be harsh, be honest. That would be the most helpful to me instead of being like, oh, it's nice. And he said, I want to see more of you in your work. And I had no idea what to do with that information. I was like, what does that mean? Like, and I, I was like, what do you mean by that? He's like, I've gotten to know you and your personality and what you're like and your energy. And, you know, when I see your, your stuff, you know, it just seems like you're just emulating other techniques. Like it's not, you know, you know what you're doing and it's solid, but it, it doesn't, you know, your spirit and your energy and your vision that I expect you to have doesn't, isn't shining through in, in your work. And I was like, ah, okay. Um, so that was a really motivating, like a specifically like, okay, how do I bring that forth? I had no idea. I was, it took me a really long time to, you know, sort of dig into getting to that. And the other provocative question that he asked me that I was thinking of when I first said it was, um, what drives you? And I didn't know the answer to that at the time. I thought it was a fascinating question. It scared me. Because I didn't know. Um, now you got me wondering, what drives me while I'm having this conversation <laughs> with you? Back, I got to focus. That's good. That's really good. Yeah. Did you come up with the, I mean, I imagine It took me a while to come up with the answer. Um, it occurred to me one day, I was reflecting on some stuff. I wasn't thinking, hey, what drives me? I was just like letting it stew for a while. And I was taking some personal growth courses at the time that it came to me. Was I realized what was driving me was fear. In the way that I had just described it to you, you know, the beginning of the question of fear of how I was being perceived on set, fear of being judged, fear of not being fast enough. Like how I appeared at work was 
the fear of that being judged was more important to me than the work itself. And that had been driving me. So what next? How did you, I mean, I imagine you decided once you identified it that you wanted to change it. Yes, absolutely. So how did you grow into the next level? Um, I remember the most bold way that I grew in that, which wasn't the first way. I was already on the path to it because this sort of happened a little bit later. Um, I took on a short film that I wouldn't have normally taken. It was, it was small, it was simple. It was three people sitting in an apartment and talking, but the director was my best friend who was an actor and he had written it and I wanted to support him and I wanted to work with him. And we knew each other so well that I said to him, I want to use this as an opportunity to step outside of my comfort zone and basically pretend that I don't know what I'm doing. Like I have some creative and work habits that I want to break that I'm specifically going to use this, this film and this opportunity as an exercise to sort of throw away what I have been doing and come at it with some sort of experimental approaches. So I, I knew him well enough that I was comfortable being that vulnerable with him to like state that, you know, versus other people that I might be just sort of working that in, in my own kind of way when I was comfortable kind of thing. You know, I just said to him like, and I told my gaffer and like, I told my gaffer who I'd never worked with before. I know that you respect me because I was a gaffer. I don't want you to experience, me to talk to you like I was a gaffer. Like I want to start from scratch. I don't want to take my years of knowledge and experience into, into this and informing the way that things are done or the, the way that I'm going to do things. I'm like, all right, I want to be fresh. I want to know what you think and I want to know what you would do. And, you know, so I would, I just tried a whole bunch of new things. Um, and another piece of advice I had gotten when I took, um, the Rockport Workshops DP Masterclass. Don't remember exactly what year that was, but my teacher was Stephen Fearberg, uh, ASC, who had be- become a friend of mine since then. And I had already been an electrician for many years. This was around the time that I said that I was feeling um, creatively uh, blocked. And he said, your experience is holding you back. Like you have been doing it as an electrician for long enough that you sort of have a belief of the way that things are done or the things, the way that things ought to be done that you're not necessarily open to possibilities or at least not in the way that someone coming at this fresh or who's never done it before, you know, who, you know, like you see that sometimes like someone who's just too ignorant to know any better, you know, like, no, you don't do it that way. But like, that's exactly where you get a new idea from because no one ever told you you couldn't do it. It's funny. That's how first-time directors are uh, are working. Sometimes, you know, they're surrounded by a bunch of people who can give them a bunch of really good ideas, and well, they haven't been around long enough to know any better, and so you get something fresh. Fresh, that's, yeah. <laughs> fresh. That's the episode for this podcast. Or the title for this <laughs> podcast. Is fresh. I like that. <laughs> I don't know what drives you, Lewis. I'm in it for the money. Well, you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna be in it a long time then. <laughs> <laughs> my, as my husband says, there are a lot easier ways of making a living. And then it, that hard to it. disagree with that. <laughs> so then, how did you continue to grow your craft as a professional once you kind of got to that point? I got to a point where I realized I was really heavy on the tech. I remember calling David Stump and saying, "Do I really need to understand the ins and outs of visual effects in order to shoot visual effects? Like, how much do I need to know? This stuff is is infinite. Like, how far do I go down this technical rabbit hole?" And I got to a point where I felt like I know all I need to know 
in terms of serving my job as a DP. Like I don't want to be a technologist, you know, just nerding out on, you know, bit depths and pixel counts and, you know, workflow like Dave. Yeah. All that kind all that kind of stuff. It didn't really, I wasn't passionate about it and, and I didn't, um, you know, I kind of looked at it as what do I need to know to feel confident in my choices to, to do my job as a DP versus technology for technology's sake. So I said, okay, I don't need to keep putting in as much effort as I have been in all these new cameras and testing every single one that comes out and, you know, getting on all the blogs about how I've used it before and I've like strangers calling me, asking me if they should buy the F55 and, you know, all this other stuff because of something that I wrote about it and, and did I like it? And so I was like, okay, how do I, going back to the one third technical, one third creative, one third managerial, I felt like I was lacking in the creative area like in terms of the amount of time that I spent developing that side of myself. And I was like, how do you develop the creative side of yourself? Like when you know you haven't used a certain camera before, you know, okay, that information's out there. I'll go and do it. I'll call my friends have used it. I'll read some articles about it. I'll go shoot a test, whatever. When it's like, oh, I want to be more imaginative. How do you do that? I don't know. You know, it's it's like, it was kind of scary in its lack of concreteness to me. I was much more more comfortable with, with the concrete information instead of, you know, I could try a whole bunch of things and it might not lead to anything or I might get a new perspective on something, but how will that actually affect my work? And, and so I started thinking about like, how do I, I want to be an artist. I want to think of myself as an artist. I want other people to see me as an artist and not as a technologist. You hire DP because of their, their vision and their talent, not because of their knowledge and their, you know, workflow design. So I just thought about how, well, what, what do I want to do? What can I do? And it was hard to realign my time management to carve out time in my life for that kind of stuff, like more museums, more still photography, more film festivals. Um, yeah. And, and going to film festivals to watch films instead of just for networking. Uh, (laughs) I, I, I'm a big love. I love short film festivals. So Mm -hmm. that's where I can draw a lot of inspiration by going to see like 15 to 20 minutes of, of a concept and idea without having to spend two hours. And then you can see many, a whole bunch of different approaches. Yeah. That's a good point. So I just sort of started shifting my mindset to be like, I'm an artist and that kind of had to do with my gravitation towards the whole Burning Man community was I got a lot of inspiration out of the people that I was meeting and that the art that was happening there and the costumes and the socializing, the parties and the openness of the people. And so I just started spending more and more time on artistic endeavors and, and less and less time worrying about what cameras are new and kind of being like, well, I know it exists and I know how the new ones compare to the ones that are out there. So when I actually have a project coming up, that's the time to actually go and test a new camera or consider, you know, oh, is this new one the right choice compared to what I've used before? You mentioned Burning Man, and uh, I imagine you would count that as a life experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the best way I've heard what you've just described put is by Roger Deakins saying, you know, the best thing you can do is go out there and have life experiences. Mm-hmm. That's how you grow your creative, you, you know, mm-hmm. your creative muscle. Other than some of the things we've already mentioned, you know, you got to remember to go out and live your life too, especially after 16-hour workdays, five to six days a week. 
And I now have the social life that I never had in my 20s because I was too busy being a workaholic. I now have more friends than I've ever had. So it's, and, and my life feels more rich and full and balanced than it ever has before. And, and I love my life. Like my life is exactly what I want it to be. Of course, I want to be shooting bigger films than I am right now. I still always wanting to, to move ahead career-wise, but in terms of the balance and fulfillment and happiness and everything else, you know, I love my life. I know everyone asks you about uh, women behind the camera. So mm-hmm. now it's our turn. Um, <laughs> is there still a glass ceiling in this business? I think the glass ceiling is thinning out or maybe getting higher. I don't know how to use keep the glass ceiling analogy going. I, I think it's still there, but I think it's not as bad as it used to be. Is it industry-wide or are you, you're focused obviously on the DP part of it for... Yeah, I'm I'm really, in terms of the amount of thought that I have given it and the opinions that I'm going to express are really focused on the DP part of it. I think there's still a glass ceiling at the studio level. Like when you get to a certain level of budgets that I and most ambitious people aspire to be shooting, you know, 40, at least 40, 40 is not even high 40 is just an average studio picture at this point um and above you know there's so much money at stake that all the decision makers are looking at any reason to disqualify narrow the pool if they could have any dp that they wanted you know they're gonna pick the ones that they know are you know gonna be the most likely to do right by them you know in terms of on time on budget quality etc so they're not inclined to take risks on new people. They want people with proven track records. And unfortunately, it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. There are not that many women who have shot films of that budget range yet. So if you're looking at several candidates, you know, you're probably looking at each one of them like, which ones can I check off for what reasons? And if someone hasn't done something yet, or you have a misogynistic, whether they know it or not, person in a decision-making position like that can be a reason to be like no I'm gonna go with this person over that person because of x y and z reasons so I do think that happens at the upper level you know studio decision-making something I have seen changing in a positive way is you know that whole thing about 10 years out of film school is when you are hitting the stride of your career that uh, I'm 40 years old so when I went to film school nearly 20 years ago or 20 years more than 20 years ago when I started nearly 20 years since I graduated it, there are plenty of women in my film program there are plenty of women DPs plenty of directors plenty of producers plenty of instructors you know this is at NYU and the people making the decisions now you have people who have been out of film school for five years, 10 years, whatever, making films, making features, making films that go to Sundance that are successful, they get money funding to do their next films. You know, you have people in their 30s who were raised by parents in the the women's lib generation. So they were raised by working mothers, confident mothers, powerful mothers. They were raised by fathers who were supportive of their powerful wives and working wives and whatever and taught their kids that, women and men are equal and there's no reason, you know, not to hire a woman. So now the people who are aging into the decision-making positions have a much more open mindset about 
hiring a woman versus a man. They don't see a woman as being a liability or being less than or being less talented or less competent or less leader or less technical or any of that because they've grown up amongst women, you know, reinforcing the, that that that's nonsense versus people who came before who that was the environment that they grew up, you know, whether, whether they are conscious of that bias or not. So things are definitely getting better. Yeah. The lower budget films that you see being made and that I am equating with younger people as well, being made by younger people have much more parity in terms of, of hiring women DPs. I definitely agree with that. I've worked with a ton of, of female producers uh, and not as many directors, and not, but a lot of writers um, and not as many DPs, but more and more female camera assistants, more and more you know members of the crew. So they're in that evolution. They may be future uh, DPs as well. So, and yeah, there are more strange. women. There are more women succeeding at younger. You know, like you look at people in their fifties, and you have Ellen Curtis and Nancy Schreiber and Sandy Sissel, and then you look at people in their forties, and then I don't. I don't know everyone's ages accurately, the so I don't get bigger. get bigger. And you know, and then you look at people in their thirties, and they get bigger. And then you look at people in their twenties, and they get bigger. So you know, the of course it takes staying power, and time will tell who is able to hack it in the long run but it seems like at least by the time you're in your 30s you're either making films for a living or you're not you're either established as a freelancer or you're not and there is definitely more and more uh, more and more women who are getting enough work as dps to keep being dps to keep progressing as dps you know uh reed morano and rachel morrison are younger than i am um by a year and two or three years they had, you know, a film that was bigger, that got more successful. I've been shooting as long as they have, but they've had better luck with the film. And, you know, not to mention talent. They're both really talented. But they had films that uh, got a lot of attention, you know, that I haven't had that, that luck yet. I haven't had, I'm still waiting for my big break. It's always tough to find out later, but do you think you've lost any jobs because you're a woman? I don't know of any that I've lost specifically. Be, it's always difficult no without somebody to come up to you later and no go, one's oh, told by the way, me. it was you and two guys, and we definitely went with one of the guys. Yeah, no one's. If, if I've ever lost a job because I was a woman, no one's told me that. I did have one guy ask me some pretty blunt questions in an interview about... He, he was basically giving me the opportunity to overcome his bias against a woman DP. Like... You know, oh, some people would say that, you know, women are not as technical, you know, or how would you deal with the crew member who, you know, wasn't respecting your authority or like a lot of people, when I've told this story, think that those are offensive or inappropriate questions. Whereas I feel like if, if he had those concerns, like I appreciate the fact that he gave me the opportunity to address them and voice them like a, he let me know they were his concerns, but B, I could have potentially given him an answer to assuage those concerns. You know, have you ever had any salty old timers on set that have given you any trouble? When I was an electrician, I had a very interesting example. You know, I I think it was on Vanilla Sky I was doing a rig. It was like there were like twenty. 20 electricians and 20 grips between the rigging crew and the shooting crew. And not every, most people didn't know each other. There's a lot of 
brought on day players for this night exterior and I got teamed up in terms of, you know, delegating who's going to do what for this big night exterior setup. I got teamed up to rig this condor with this older guy I'd never met before. And he started bossing me around and kind of treating me with an assumption that I didn't know what I was doing. And I very quickly answered his questions and contributed alternate approaches. You know, another idea of doing it like, basically proved myself very quickly by the way that I handled him. And like once it was obvious to him that I did know what I was doing, I did know what I was talking about. I was competent. I was experienced. He dropped any uh, air of, 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 you know, treating, you know, belittling me at all. So I just chalked that up to, you know, it might not have been gender. It could have been age. It was just a lack of familiarity that could happen to a guy. That could happen to an older guy who he didn't know and didn't give the benefit of the doubt. That could happen to a younger guy who he just assumed, oh, if you're young, you must not have been doing this for very long. And I'm the old, you know, experienced guy. I'm going to know what I'm doing. So I think a lot of women use the fact that they're a woman as the excuse that they go to first in terms of why they're not getting opportunities. Whereas I think that that that's not necessarily true. It could be lack of familiarity could be age it could be that person's own mood that day like I I think it's it's easy to point to you know taking responsibility off of yourself and say oh well I'm not you know successful because I'm a woman and women DPs are blah 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 blah. but it's like no like I I wish every time I get asked this question I want to quote this Catherine Bigelow quote that I forget what it is verbatim but it it has to do with you know if, if there's any bias against women making movies, you know, I just choose to ignore it because, uh, I, uh, I'm a woman and I'm not planning on, you know, stopping making movies anytime soon. Like that's a misquote, but the the point is her point, the way that I see it as using it as an example is you are a woman, you, that's not going to change. Like go forth and do what you're going to do anyway. And like, stop blaming the fact that you're a woman as the reason why, you know, something that you can't help as the reason why other people are going to relate, relate to you in a certain way. And if you don't make it an issue, they're not going to make it. Most people are not going to make it an issue. And that issue could be lots of different things. And it's Mm -hmm. important to be able to relate that to whatever. I don't want to call it any specifics for fear of someone misinterpreting what I'm trying to say. But I do think that, you know, I, you know, forgetting about what other people may think sometimes is a way to make sure that you can stay on your own path. Exactly. And, you know, if there have ever been any downsides to, to being a woman uh, in a man's job, quote unquote man's job, there are more upsides. Like the, if there are any downsides, I haven't even seen them. I see plenty of upsides. I see the fact that I'm very visible. Like my name is Gendra. My name is not John or Joe or Fred. You know, people pay attention to gen- People have heard of Gendra. Like I have people who know who I am just because I'm a woman DP. I ha- like people like to support the underdog. You know, people think it's great that a woman DP is succeeding and making a go out of out of it and and they're enthusiastic about that. So, you're memorable. You uh, I get a lot of support from vendors and manufacturers, you know, who who want to help give me a boost, you know, in terms of like you know, whether it's free gear for a short or uh, friends letting me borrow things or, or whatever, you know, I, I do think 
that sort of supporting the underdog like makes people feel good you know that 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 I get a lot more attention positive attention because of it it's always more fun to support an underdog I'm mm-hmm. a Mets fan you don't have to tell me <laughs> I, and that's the same reason why villains in most movies are always more apparently powerful than the hero itself is because the, everybody likes to have an underdog. Everybody likes to support the underdog. You spend a lot of time traveling and uh, doing documentaries, Papua New Guinea, Tanzania, Haiti, South Africa, India. Highlights, interesting stories. Papua New Guinea. I could I could talk for days about Papua New Guinea. Uh, there's so much I could say. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Other than it really Just is overall like beautiful or no, it's culturally, it's like going back in time for 2000 years. Like the, it, it is not like a modernized country, you know, it's tribal and all the tribes speak their own languages and the country's so mountainous that there are no roads. So therefore there's no cross communication be, between tribes and I mean, to get around the country it was just all airstrips and flights. You know, you could be going 20 miles and there's no road between here and there and you have to jump on a plane. And yeah, that that was just such an amazing opportunity to go somewhere. And there's there's really no travel infrastructure there. Like you can't really go unless you're on a tour, an organized tour, which is ridiculously expensive, or you're doing a documentary or like with a missionary organization that are pretty much the only out side or if you're there for like mining interests or, or something that the only outside people mining is big over uh here in western australia mm-hmm. and a lot of the pacific islands that uh that have those resources mm-hmm. um that's why i travel the world strip mining i don't know <laughs> if you know that about me a highlight in terms of life and filming was tanzania unfortunately the project that i was shooting i will never get a copy of it because it was you know, semi-confidential, you know, being done for a drug study um, on malaria. And I got to shoot. So we did a bunch of stuff with mosquito nets. There was a lot, a lot about how malaria impacts everybody's lives. And so we were shooting in remote villages with, where people lived in mud huts and the kids at least had never seen a white person before. And um, they're just so curious about you and everyone's just so joyous and the sense of community. Obviously, if you're living in a village with, you know, just 10 families or something, everyone knows each other and everyone gets along and everyone's close. And just amazing to see such strongly contrasting ways of life to, to what you are, are used to living every day and what you take for granted as, as, normal and uh, the things that bug you like people tweet hashtag you know first world problems about this or that stupid little you know technology annoyance or whatever but one of the most beautiful things I've ever shot that I wish I could like I was crying while I was shooting it it was so beautiful I really wish I could show to people and 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 have a copy of for my documentary reel was a woman breastfeeding her baby and under a mosquito net in a dark mud hut with a tiny little window with the sun blasting in and like backlighting the mosquito net. And I'm just like envisioning it in my mind now telling you about it. And I'm like tearing up. It was just like so beautiful as an image, but also so beautiful as a moment and as a human, you know, the human connection of like everything else. It's like a mother and a baby and like feeding like life in this moment of intimacy and quiet and the middle of nowhere and an entirely different culture. And it's so much, you know, we're all just human and it's just, it's just amazing, amazing to shoot. I just felt so 
like blessed to be there and to witness this this moment. And now the CIA has the footage. <laughs> you should just tell people it was a CIA <laughs> operation. We understand it was classified. Are there any countries uh, that you haven't been to that you would go to in a heartbeat? Cuba. You want to shoot Cuba? Oh, Havana? I, I just want to go to Cuba. I want to go to Cuba so bad before the... Um, the sugar fields? Where, where in uh, Cuba? Havana. You know, just before the country changes, before Castro's out. And, and I just assume the country's just Before the Starbucks everywhere? Yeah, and, uh, exactly. A buddy of mine did a documentary in Cuba. He said it was... Um, it was very difficult to get around and do a documentary. I bet. People just don't get uh, far with cameras showing what's going on, mm-hmm. which makes it, uh, makes it tough. I would like to go somehow, whether it's, you know, any reason whatsoever. Like, I don't care. I don't care if I'm shooting or photographing or they're on a, you know, NGO, you know, charity mission, something like attending a film festival which a friend of mine got to do had her film invited to the Havana Film Festival and got like a permission from the government like a you know a guest visa by the government Ooh. to get to go I was like can I come with you and I thought I was going to get to like I would drop anything uh, at you know no matter what was going on in my life to you heard like, it here first producer she'll, <laughs> she'll work for 10% of rate if it's in Cuba yeah I'd, yeah I'd probably <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could swap stories at some point. Uh, tell you about my recent trip to Ukraine. All right. I'm getting hungry. We can go to lunch after this if you want. We got two more podcasts to do. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you, we've talked about it a bunch of different ways that you've grown your work, styles, where you're getting some of your influences. What are some of the styles that you like to explore? I really like uh, magical realism. I like, and, and, for the same reason, but totally different psychological thrillers. I like when there's a break from reality. Like I, I feel like reality has expectations in terms of, you know, you got, it's modern day, two people sitting in a diner talking, like you know, you and the viewer know what that should look like. Sure. You have a lot of artistic license that you can take within that, but you, you're still going to have the rules of the physics apply and light behaves in a certain way and you know you can only stretch things so far in terms of your expressiveness that that still fit within the confines of reality um when you are creating your own world and your own reality you know you just have a blank canvas you know you can decide okay these are you know in in this world you know red means this i mean you can kind of do that with storytelling anyway but the, if it if it if if it's purple, purple someone's, someone's going to die. die yeah um so yeah, I, li- I like films that, that that have freedom from reality. I feel like give you more artistic, what's the word? Freedom. And in that same vein, how do you grow your ability to interpret director's visions? Different visions, that is. That's a really good question. I'm kind of in the midst of exploring that for myself right now. I've done a lot of you know, indie, very indie indies where most of the directors are first time directors and they're hiring me because I'm an experienced DP and I'm experienced with working with first time directors and they want a certain degree of guidance in terms of the process and how things are done or what they should be doing. And I don't mean how to direct, but I mean, in terms of the process and prepping and how to communicate their ideas and everything, you know, they, they lean on the DP first time directors lean on their DP a lot in terms of you're the one who's done this before. You're my partner. Show me how it's done within the confines of them still being the director. 
now that I'm working with more experienced directors and more experienced producers and more experienced actors, honestly, it's a little less clear to me how to support any given director that already has their process. Like when they don't have a process, I know exactly how to support them. I know, I know that they don't know anything. So I know what they don't know, but when they've done it before, I don't know what they do know. I don't know what they don't know. I don't want to be pushy. I don't want to step on their toes. I do want to draw, you know, communication out of them, but every, you know, everyone's different and it's our job as a DP to be a chameleon. So it's all about the relationship and, and, you know, I, I personally value as much prep as possible. You know, I want to really get inside my director's head and, and feel like I really understand what they want to say and how they want to say it so that when we get on set, all those fast, you know, split second spur of the moment decisions are coming from an informed place that is in alignment with their vision when I feel like I understand their vision through all the time we took in prep. So we're going to take all these wonderful little five second nuggets and we're going to edit this down to a 32 second podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, no, no. no, that's really good. Thanks. So with those 32 seconds of awesome podcasting that we're going to deliver, mm-hmm. uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to come down here and share your stories and experiences with us. Uh, it's irreplaceable. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. So we hope everybody had a good time and uh, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and uh, check out our website, www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. Again, we implore everyone to go on iTunes and rate five stars and give us a little review saying how awesome our show is and how much fun you have listening to it, how much you learn from it. We implore everybody to do that. Did I use that? Did I mix it up? Again? I wouldn't implore. I implore everyone to go there. It was the French version. I guess. I implore. <laughs> implore. Bonjour, je m'appelle Brion. I had no idea we were doing this in French.